If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here, Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Oh, Pierre Polyebra uh, on the show. Have we heard the call back from the Prime Minister yet? Is he? Is he? Is uh, he agreed to come on the show? Anybody seen the? Is he under here? Anybody seen the Prime Minister? Is he taking our calls? Uh, leader that while well, his co-host, the, the Prime Minister's co-host, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, he's talked to us. He talks to us all the time. Uh, but no, nothing but crickets from uh, the Prime Minister's uh, office. He's probably at the uh, he's probably at the ski hill by now. He's off on holidays. They're all off, aren't they? All right. Speaking of Pierre Polyev, uh, he is Canadian Press's 2023 Newsperson of the Year, Newsmaker of the Year, uh, Canadian Press Newsmaker of the Year. Uh, Canadian Press, of course, a Canadian news service goes across the country, and editors across the country vote on who their Newsmaker of the Year is was what have you and canadian press voting that uh, 2023 newsmaker of the year uh is pierre polyev 26 percent of the vote the second closest was at 14 percent uh a little over half uh and that went to the manitoba premier tied with justin trudeau so coming in at uh, a distant 14 percent. so there you go uh the newsmaker of the year and we've got them on the show coming up all right what else we got inflation is being sticky it's sticky as don fox would say uh and it's holding at 3.1 percent which was a bit unexpected most people thought uh in the financial world that it might drop a bit simply uh because of the whipping we've been all taking uh so no it's uh it has not dropped it stayed the same so they predict that rates will stay the same which uh I guess most have been predicting, for, have been predicting for a long time. We're hearing about rates starting to go down in the U.S. next year. Nobody's having that conversation here, but the tail obviously wags the dog here. So, uh, or is it vice versa? And uh, uh, but still in Canada, no chatter of that. And with inflation sticking at three point one percent, it doesn't look like we'll see any changes uh, there. All right, what else we got? Oh, Canada going to uh, Canadian forces going to protect trade in the Red Sea. Whatever's going on there, we'll try to find that out coming up uh, a little later on. So uh, hang on for that. It should be a great show. All right, uh, coming up, and you know this happens every Christmas time. And we often have the SBCA on to talk about it. Remember during the pandemic, you could, I think it was the only time that the SBCA was like empty. It was like, you know, you, you couldn't, maybe, maybe a gerbil uh, or something like that. But like, uh, because during the pandemic, everybody wanted pets. Then, of course, when the pandemic ended and people started going back, then in came the influx of pets. People couldn't care for them anymore. And then now affordability has become a massive issue just with rent and, and groceries and so on and so forth. And people are having a hard time because it costs money to have a pet, as anyone that has one knows. So it's, uh, you know, and, and for some people, this is their family. So it, it, it's a, a very difficult situation. But we're going to talk to the SPCA today and get a little update on where they are. And, of course, they always suggest that uh, – Getting a dog at, a, at the Christmas uh, holiday is probably not the best thing to do unless you do all your research and make sure you're 
you're fully prepared for it. That's for sure. Certainly not as surprise gifts. All right. What else we got? Oh, Nick Danos is going to join us. You know, I love the polls. Christia Freeland, Mark Carney are more popular choices to lead the Liberal Party than the Prime Minister, according to a new nano survey. So uh, that's conducted for the Globe and Mail. That'll be interesting. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And the guess who? Guess who's who? Nobody really knows. Well, we do. Uh, Burton Cummings, Randy Bachman, guess who? We'll know there's the rest of the band. And I remember very vividly talking to both uh, Bachman and Cummings uh, way back when, when they were doing that album, uh, their stuff together. And they said, well, you know, uh, we're not going to, um, you know, we can't tour as the guess who. And, you know, they sit at home and get paid. And now it appears to be the reverse. So we'll find out where that story is going. Uh, guess who's who. That'll be coming up. All right. So, um, you know, it's been interesting. Uh, we had, we got a dog just before the pandemic. So it's, it's been absolutely fabulous for us. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but we were, and then especially when the pandemic hit, it was, you know, it was great to have a pet around. And I remember having chats with people at, uh, the Hamilton, uh, Hamilton Burlington SPCA and everybody wanted a pet. It was like unbelievable. And then of course things got semi back to normal. People started returning to their normal lives and then whoop, the, the trend reversed and people started bringing things back, dogs, cats, whatever that now they didn't have the time for, or, uh, especially with the situation regarding affordability lately, rent and groceries and such. Um, it's expensive to have a pet, especially if you've got a dog or, or a, a pet that is uh, elderly per se. So, um, you know, this time of the year, uh, the Hamilton Burlington SPCA always out with some tips on this time of the season. And if you are thinking about taking, uh, you know, the step into pet ownership, it's, uh, it's a little bit more important than just something furry under the tree. Uh, let's bring in Michelle McNabb, Director, Community Outreach, Animal Programs for the Hamilton Burlington SPCA. And with us now, Michelle, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. Thanks, Scott, for having me. It's exciting to be here. So what's it like at the SPCA right now? Are you full? Are you low, medium? Where where are you with uh, capacity? So I would say right now we are pretty full. We're fuller than we've been in a while. Um, but that being said, we're also seeing some fantastic adopters come in, and we're having some really great conversations and making those matches with the pets and their people and, um, yeah, while stays with our animals are a little bit longer than normal, we're certainly seeing them still moving. So that's always very exciting. Hmm, yeah, that's a good that's a good sign. So why are you and well, why do you think you're seeing an increase right now? So I would say a couple of things, kind of what you touched on earlier, COVID and the whole pandemic sort of put a, a bit of a wrench into some people's plans. Lots of individuals got pets. And I think there's just a market right now that most people who were looking for a pet probably got that pet during the pandemic. So things are definitely taking a little bit longer to move out of our shelter into their forever home. Um, but, you know, we're, we're still seeing those really great adoptions happening. We've got some fabulous pets on site right now who are looking for their homes, and we're excited to see where they land. And cost of pets, uh, cost of pets a factor in the discussion as well? 100%. Having a pet is a really, really big commitment. Not only time, but like you said, financially as well, right? We want to make sure that the person who's adopting the pet is is well aware of all of those implications and parameters that go around with owning a pet. So that comes back to sort of that conversation piece. 
It also comes down to what can we do as an SPCA and as a community-minded organization to help those individuals that are in our community who do have pets and who might be facing some of those challenges. So we've recently expanded our pet pantry program where we've got pet food available, you know, some supplies for those pets in need. And those owners who are just finding themselves in a little bit of a crunch and needing that little bit of a helping hand to get them over the hill and make sure that that pet gets to stay with them instead of being surrendered. Yeah, we've actually heard increases in like uh, organizations and for lack of a better term, like a pet food bank. A hundred percent. Absolutely. As we're seeing and we're hearing, you know, with with humans and with people, Mm -hmm. the same goes for our pets, right? And it's we would hate to think that somebody needs to have to surrender that pet simply because they can't get pet food for the next couple of weeks. So oh. if we can help with that, we're certainly happy to, and we're doing our very best to get that those resources out to the community as much as possible. All right. We talked about the perfect match, and I know this is something the SPCA takes pride in. Talk about this project and some of the and what you need to talk about when you're thinking of making this jump. Oh, absolutely. So I would say at this time, especially, but really at any time of the year, you want to make sure that everybody in the home is on board with getting that pet. So yeah. we always, you know, a pet coming into the house should not be a surprise for those who are going to have to care for the pet, because that's not fair to anybody. So really, really making sure that everybody's aware, you know what, your schedule's going to need to change a little bit. We're going to need to maybe make some adjustments, you know, um, and it is a commitment. Somebody's going to need to, especially if you've got a dog, Take the dog out for a walk, take the dog out to go to the washroom, all of that kind of fun stuff. So really making sure that any of those um, decision makers in the home, I guess we would call them, are on board and ready to welcome a pet, not only at Christmas, but at any time of the year. So, you know, you show up at the Hamilton Burlington SPCA, you're looking for a pet. What's the process? So right now, the best thing to do, we have a lot of our pets out in foster care. So we're trying to ensure that over the next couple of weeks when, you know, we're mm. going to be closed for a few days, that sort of right. thing, we want to ensure that they're in a home environment as much as possible. But they're all posted on our website. So best place to go is look at our website, see who's there, look at all their friendly, funny little faces. And then if there's somebody that sparks your interest or catches your eye, there's an application right online. You can fill it out, send it in. And then a staff member will be in touch. And just out of curiosity, because I just I can't imagine what this is like. Uh, how many are out for the holidays per se, Michelle? Ah, so actually, I was just talking with our foster coordinator earlier today, and by the end of this week, so come like Friday afternoon, there will probably be between fifty-five and sixty pets out in foster care. Oh man, that's amazing! <laughs> that's good for them. It's, it's, because it's so great. How fantastic for those pets to be in a home, you yeah. know, hanging out on the couch and chilling with everybody near the Christmas tree and just really enjoying all of the fun that comes with people being home for a little bit, right? A lot of people have vacation right now. They're taking some time off. And we've had some wonderful community members step up to open up their house for a temporary place for these pets to land. Wow, what a great idea. And adds a little bit more fun to the holiday, that's for sure. Uh, Michelle McDab with us, Director of Community Outreach uh, of an, uh, and Animal Programs for the Hamilton Burlington SPCA. And again, uh, if you're looking for a pet, this is your best place to start. Michelle, thanks for the time. Good luck. Have a great holiday. Amazing. Thanks, Scott. Have a great day. A new poll out of Nanos. And you know I love the polls. It tells everybody uh, where everybody's uh, head's at and what they're thinking. And uh, an interesting uh, one coming out just before Christmas here. 
here. Is it going to snow in Ottawa over Christmas? Is it going to be green? Do we know? No, that's anyway. Uh, basically, the numbers are uh, that uh, people such as Christia Freeland and Mark Carney are more popular choices than the prime minister is for um, leader of the Liberal Party. Uh, now, we certainly know how the party's been trending downward uh, through the summer and such, but what happens when people outside the party uh, or even inside the party are starting to trend uh, better than you are? Let's bring in Nick Nanos, chief data science, a scientist and founder of Nanos Research, and here now. Nick, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm fine, and great to join you and all your listeners. So, Nick, uh, you know, again, we've seen, uh, you know, the data over the course of the summer and how things have been trending and such for the party. Uh, what about when members of the party or even outside the party are starting to trend uh, better than the leader itself? How, how does that change the discussion? Does it? Well, it has it has a significant change. You know what? We also have to mention in full transparency, none of the above actually did really well on who was the most appealing. <laughs> yeah. To people, yeah. I think it came in at around 24% of Canadians when we listed all of the potential uh, or a series of potential leadership candidates, including Justin Trudeau. None of the above came in at 24. Unsure at 19. So there you go. Four out of every 10. It's like a pox on you all. And then in comes Christia Freeland at 18, Carney at 15, and Justin Trudeau, the person that is the leader of the Liberal Party, at nine, trailing both of them. So what about one inside the party, one outside the party? What does that say? Yeah, it's kind of like, is it, would they be kind of like country and Western music? Not to diminish <laughs> country and Western music, but, you know, I think for for some Canadians, uh, they'd like to see a continuation uh, in terms of the general direction that the Liberals are in. And there are others that would like to see uh, like to see an outsider. You know, Mark Kearney was the one outsider that's there. The other thing we have to put on the table is that if you have more of a name recognition and more people tend to know you, like Christia Freeland and Mark Carney, you tend to do better in these polls yeah. compared to uh, other ministers like Jolie and Anand and uh, Champagne. So there's a bit of a baked-in advantage if you've uh, got more name recognition. But for Justin Trudeau, he's got the highest name recognition, and he's trailing two other individuals as uh, on the appeal front who, who people would find appealing to lead the Liberal Party of Canada. Some that uh, that came in at under 5% are still uh, prominent names, and, and many have come up for uh, suggestions to take over the leadership. Are you surprised they didn't resonate uh, more? And even Mark uh, Carney, now I'm Bank of Canada and, uh, and, of course, in the U.K. and such. Um, but are you surprised that some of those under 5 didn't score higher? Um, yes and no, because, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, for some, why don't we pick someone like Champagne? You know, his profile is not really the same as right. Freeland, Carney, and Trudeau's yeah. profile. You know, he's he's much better known in the province of Quebec. But, you know, the thing is, is that it's liberal delegates that will pick if there ever is a leadership, and currently there is not a liberal leadership, but if there ever was one, uh, liberal delegates would be picking, and they know all of these folks would all be known quantities. So, uh, so you know, I think the, the most important thing is that you know, Justin Trudeau was only the choice of 9% of Canadians as the person with the greatest uh, appeal, political appeal, to lead the Liberal Party of uh, Canada. And as you pointed out, that uh, elusive candidate with uh, none of the above on the back of their hockey jersey uh, are doing better than all of these. What does that say? Well, what this means is that, you know, for a significant proportion of can Canadians, it doesn't really matter who the leader is. 
42% would probably never vote liberal. Um, and another 19% would be unsure. So this speaks to the fact that, you know, the liberals have been in power since 2015. Um, every government has a best before date. And, you know, I think uh, regardless of who the leader is, whether it's Justin Trudeau or someone else, it's going to be a difficult election. The next election will be difficult for the liberals, regardless of who's at the helm. Uh, many have talked about the runway between now and then, however long that that is. Is there enough to reestablish, uh, you know, a new direction here? Uh, and again, um, the prime minister has said he will stay on. Would having numbers like this change that decision? Well, you know, the thing is, is in my experience, you know, however long it takes to develop a trend, and this trend has been six months in the making, the trend that's been working against the Liberals, it takes at least twice as long to fix it or turn it around. Yeah. So that means that the Liberals lead, need at least a year. And for everything to go right in that year, and ideally, if you're a Liberal strategist, for both the Conservatives and the New Democrats to simultaneously blow up. Remember John Candy blowed up real good. One of yeah. those things to happen uh, for the liberals to turn the numbers around. But, you know, the time's running out and, you know, just the whole issue of Justin Trudeau. I think the reality is, is that um, if he if he wants to decide if he wants to have an impact, he's got to decide like unequivocally in the first part of 2024, whether he's staying or not, because if he decides to change his mind in the summer, or the fall, it realistically might be too late. There just might not be enough time for the Liberals to turn things around for them to hold on to the government. That's going to be the difficulty. Let's talk about the opposition, Pierre Polyevra, uh, a newsmaker, Canadian Press Newsmaker of the Year, just announced a little earlier on uh, today. But, I, you know, I'm at my kids' hockey game earlier on. People are talking uh, talking to me because they know the business that I'm in. And, they, you know, what about that guy? You know, that guy, I'm not sure about that guy. How do Canadians feel about uh, Pierre Polyevra? Well, you know what? Whatever opinions that they had, you know, a year ago, they're basically almost exactly the same. So, hmm. you know, the, the Trudeau numbers have slid in the past year with an increasing number of individuals saying that uh, they'd like to have someone else other than him uh, lead the Liberals in the next election. But the num that same question that we asked for Pierre Poiliev is exactly the same. So right now, um, about... One third of Canadians would like to see him as the leader of the Conservative Party. 46% like to see someone else. 18% had no preference. But those numbers are almost exactly the same over the last year, which to me means that whatever people thought of him a year ago, his political traction has not diminished at all. While over the same period, people have become more negative uh, about uh, about Justin Trudeau, where only about, I think about one out of every five think that he should stay on. And that's dropped from around 25% last December. Where do the NDP go from here? Because again, obviously propping up uh, the Liberal government and such, but in, in many situations, he's at the same or polling Jagmeet Singh below uh, the Prime Minister. What's his future? Well, I think they've come to this new agreement related to pharmacare that's going to happen in late spring. Mm -hmm. So it looks like the government will, the the, uh, the arrangement, why don't we call it, between the New Democrats and the Liberals will continue until then. But I wouldn't be surprised if after the NDP get what they want out of the Liberals and claim another victory in terms of something that they've delivered for Canadians, if they don't pull the plug on the parliamentary arrangement, but not defeat the government. Uh, because they're going to need some runway 
to distance themselves from the liberals because you can't one day be part of a coal—I shouldn't say coalition. You can't one day be propping up the government and then the next day say we should be booting those people out because you've been keeping them in power for the last number of years. So I think the window starts to open after the spring and uh, for the new Democrats to step out. And then it's anyone's game after that how soon or later an election might take place. So get a victory, then bail. Yeah, I think that I think that's one option yeah. for the NDP, mm. right? Because they've, they've got to distance themselves. Uh, but at the same time, they have to deliver something else. And at least, you know, they've got the, the dental child, uh, the child dental stuff. Right. And then if they have a second thing, you know, Jagmeet Singh is like, okay, you know, I tried my best. I got two things out of these folks. Uh, but now it's enough. Um, we're just going to support them or oppose them on a vote-by-vote basis, and we'll see what happens. Nick Nano's with us, Chief Data Scientist, founder of Nano's Research. Nick, always fun. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take it easy. Bye-bye. To say the world's a little unstable might be an understatement, and uh, the rippling effect, uh, it seems to go right around the planet. And there's some issues in the Red Sea uh, in regard to uh, trading vessels that are going to and fro, and now Canada is joining, uh, joining a U.S.-led multinational operation to protect commercial vessels traversing the Red Sea amid escalating missile and drone attacks by Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen that have threatened global trade. To talk more about all of this, Christian Leprec with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, and here now, Christian, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am indeed, and it's nice to talk again, Scott. It, it's great to talk to you as well, Christian. Why are we seeing so much uh, more activity now in the Red Sea? What's going on? Why Why are we seeing more of it? So I think there's a couple of things at play. One is that the Houthis are in sort of quasi-peace negotiations that are being mediated by Oman. There's different sides to this. Uh, the Saudis want a deal. The United Arab Emirates is backing a different group. Um, and so the Houthis are trying to posture for the best possible deal and to show that they're a veto player. They showed themselves to be a veto player in the UN constitutional negotiations uh, in Yemen. Uh, and they're trying to demonstrate that again now, that like without their interests being accommodated, there will not be um, a, uh, a peaceful arrangement. The other is that Iran is trying to posture here and trying to demonstrate its influence, basically from Iraq, through Libya, through Syria, uh, through the Gaza Strip, down to Yemen. You can now sort of draw this quadrant around Saudi Arabia, if you want, um, where uh, Iran can demonstrate that ultimately it is the ones who are in control. And they're trying to do this, I think, for um, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, they probably want some sanctions relief from the United States, and this is their way of negotiating indirectly. The other is that, of course, they're happy to cause havoc for the world economy. And so they know this is going to drive up the oil price. They know it's an election year in the United States. They know uh, the Biden administration has been clamoring to keep the oil price down to the point where they're willing to make a deal with the human rights abusers in Venezuela. Um, so Iran is trying to demonstrate it is a veto player, it is a disruptor, and there will not be stability in the Middle East, and there will not be uh, political success for the Biden administration if Iran can help it. Uh, how much or does the Israeli-Hamas conflict factor into this? 
So sure, this is, uh, but I think it, it fits into the same playbook, right? Where Iran can now demonstrate they're the veto players in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in the Gaza Strip, in Yemen. And this is part of Iranian grand strategy, right? So Iranian grand strategy is this multi-layered uh, strategy with multi-facets um, where Iran always has the option of pulling a multitude of different levers, not knowing how the Middle East is going to evolve. They want to have different options at their disposal. Whereas many other countries like the Saudi Arabia, for instance, have put all their eggs in one basket, in this case, in particular, with their security relationship with the United States. And so ultimately, if you look over the last 20 years in the Middle East, in my view, the big winner in terms of influence in the Middle East has been Iran. Uh, and this explains is one of the reasons, of course, why the mullahs in Iran are still in power. Is this largely saber rattling? Is this for uh, domestic politics or, or, or is this a threat? No, I mean, it, it poses a significant threat to uh, um, especially countries such as Canada. Look, Canada is a trading nation. Uh, so we have an interest in freedom of navigation and in open sea routes. Uh, 12% of the world's shipping and 10% of the world's oil uh, goes through the strait. So by the Houthis essentially being able to shut that down because shipping insurance by and large does not cover acts of war. So it means that any of the shipping companies are on the hook for any of the damage to both their vessels and the goods on those vessels. This is why the companies are now taking the longer route around. Um, this is uh, this poses a significant challenge, including to the global economy. Now, it's not as bad as, for instance, the Suez Canal, I think, uh, uh, when it was blocked uh, inadvertently uh, in 2021, right, yeah. uh, because there's more ships around, uh, the supply chains are more resilient today than they were back then. But it's still, nonetheless, if this goes on for a few weeks, it will have an impact on our economy at a time, of course, when Canadians and um, other consumers around the world are already uh, uh, crying foul over inflation. If this starts to greatly interfere with supply chain, how does that accelerate conflict in the world? Uh, so uh, what is, of course, the hydrocarbon supply chain? That's primarily sort of at stake here. It also poses a significant economic challenge for, interesting enough, Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia's major port, Jeddah, is, uh, is on the Red Sea. And so in some ways, this also ends up being sort of a quasi-blockade uh, of Saudi Arabia and, uh, and trade for, uh, for Saudi Arabia in, in the region. Um, uh, in terms of the supply chains, look, I mean, uh, a lot of the goods that go to Europe, especially from Asia, uh, end up going through the Suez Canal. Many European countries are already in, in, in economic difficulty. Look at Germany that is um, about to enter recession, for instance, the largest economy in Europe. Uh, so Iran knows full well that uh, that this will uh, this will cause political problems, uh, and that this will cause countries to uh, perhaps uh, uh, ease some of the pressure that they've applied both on the Houthis and on Iran. Uh, and this is Iran's way of trying to assert its interests. What the question Canada for us is: Are we going to let Iran essentially extort the world uh, community with its uh, with its tactics, whether it's in Gaza, in Yemen, or in Iraq? And how can Canada help here, here, Christian? Well, the irony is that Canada isn't really helping. 
Look, yeah. what we're sending is, is a half a dozen naval officers. We yeah. have no ships to send. Yeah. Last uh, February, when we were called to scramble our jets, we had no jets when um, the Chinese sent uh, balloons over North America. And we sent our soldiers to Latvia, and we have no air defense. So the 25 years of neglect of the Canadian armed forces is ultimately coming home to roost. Because when our allies and partners are asking for assets, we don't have any to contribute. And look, the Navy is extremely stretched across across the world. We have to yeah. keep Russian submarines at bay from uh, the North American continent. We're trying to do UN enforcement, sanctions enforcements against North Korea. We're trying to do freedom of navigation uh, missions uh, in the Straits of Taiwan and uh, where we have vessels in the Mediterranean to try to contain Russia. We have to contain Russia in the North Sea, in the Baltic Sea. Um, and so every ship here makes a difference. And so when a NATO founding member such as Canada, a G7 country, has no ship to contribute, which is exactly what the head of the Navy warned about two weeks ago when he made his public pronouncement that basically we don't have the vessels, we don't have the people, and we don't have the equipment. There's a real risk the Navy will not be able to perform for the government of Canada when the government of Canada asks. And you might say the same thing of the Air Force and of, uh, of the Army. This is the result here of 25 years of neglect and of governments that pretend that ultimately they don't need to invest in defense. And now we can't be surprised when our allies don't take us seriously and when our reputation internationally is significantly tarnished and then we can't assert our interests because nobody really wants to talk to us. Christian Leprac, Professor, Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Always fascinating, Christian. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Time to play another edition of Guess Who's Who. Well, actually, it's not, it's the first edition, but we'll see where it goes. You never know. Uh, let's bring in Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator, an interesting controversy surrounding the band, the Guess Who and Who's Who. Eric is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Eric, I remember when Bachman Cummings were touring and did their album together and interviewing, I believe it was Randy Bachman, and I said, well, why don't you just put the band back together and call it the Guess Who? Uh, and he basically said, well, I'm not going to pay them to sit at home. So obviously <laughs> there wasn't a great relationship there. Uh, why doesn't this band just play together? Obviously they don't get along anymore. Yeah, exactly. So it all kind of started when Randy and Jim Kale and Gary Peterson and Bob Ashley and Chad Allen started Chad Allen and the Reflections back in 1962. So we're going back mm -hmm. like 60 years. That band became the Guess Who in 1965. Chad Allen left, Bob left. Then Burton Cummings came into the group. And of course, then they exploded with hits like American Woman and No Time and Undone. So Randy leaves the group. And then Burton Cummings leads the group in 1975. Jim Kale who played the bass guitar, he registered the name shortly thereafter. And I have a feeling that Burton Cummings and Randy Bachman were okay with this because like most bands in the 70s, nobody had any idea that this was going to be a multi-million dollar brand name 40 years later. So Jim Kale, who registered the band, he continued to perform with the Guess Who with Randy and Burton, had a lovely relationship. Then Jim Kale re retired from performing, but Gary continued to play on drums. And I think that's where this disconnect is, is that 
the deal of the guess who, what seems to be, at least on paper, is that mm. Gary Peterson does not have the right to use the name the guess who because Randy and Burton kind of gave that name to to um to Jim Kale. And now that right. he's no longer available, somebody in Burton and Randy's eyes, somebody out there is using the guess who name without Randy and Burton's authorization and confusing the general public. So this is then the guess who this is just the original drummer and then basically a tribute band. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 And and you're going to get that with a lot of bands. You and I have talked in the past yeah. about yeah. trying to answer the question, when does a band become a cover band through not of their making or at least not through their kind of understanding on it. Yeah. Um, you know, Journey, the group, has one or two members left, depending on who they are. The band Sticks has one or two, depending on what show you see. But in about five years, all of these classic rock artists are going to have to deal with this issue of, does it become a cover band, like The Temptations or The Four Tops? Yeah. Or... Does somebody actually own the name of it and they have the right to trademark it and release as much music as they want to under that name? And basically, as long as you own the, the rights to the name, you can do with what you wish with it. Is that accurate? I guess so. What what Randy and Burton are claiming, though, is that it's confusing people, especially in the U.S., mm. those fans who probably don't know Randy, they probably right. don't know Burton as much as we do up here in Canada, where we all know that the you know, Randy and Burton are not with the band anymore. You can see it on the posters. But to America, they may not understand or even realize who is in the band. And that's what Randy and Bert and uh, uh, and Burton are kind of claiming is like they have absolutely nothing to do with the original band. And thus, it's kind of confusing people to think that they're going to spend money on tickets expecting to see Randy and Burton in the band when that's just not happening. Could we see something where in one country this can happen and in this country another thing can happen? Yeah, absolutely. You know, much like the Harlem Globetrotters, where they could go and kind of franchise their name out to various um, players under the umbrella of of the Harlem Globetrotters. Um, there's a number of bands that kind of do this, um, but not so much as... I think the lawyers would like, or at least the managers would like. Um, there was a moment in the early 1970s when Fleetwood Mac had two different versions of the band. Yeah. <laughs> um, one was up to like a, a you know a manager who just was really working under the table um, in cash um, to hire this band Fleetwood Mac, and it wasn't even anywhere near that. So you can actually do that, provided that you own the name of it and you give the authorization for it. The fact that Bachman Cummings tour under that name instead of the guess who does that hold any weight? And oh yeah, they're the heart of the band. Yeah, absolutely. When um, Jim Kale, when he can continue to perform with the band, often with Gabe, with with, uh, with Gary Peterson, um, Burton and Randy joined them for reunion tours, including um, in Winnipeg at the Pan Am Games back in 1999. Right. Yeah. So there's yeah. been moments where the band has gotten back together again. Look, I think anything is always on the table for anybody. If you put another couple of zeros after <laughs> exactly the, the, the hundred, you know? Um, so I think anything is possible, but I think right now though, I think what Randy and, and Burton want is the ability to own that name so they can continue to do what they want to do. And it's not just, you know, raking in money for touring. It could be, possible releases. I mean, Randy and Burton 
are both pretty savvy when it comes to their archive material, for instance. Um, you know, they may want to put out releases under the guess who name, but really mm. can't because they don't own the authorization to do it. Plus, in this new world, Eric, where uh, bands, whatever, selling their rights ahead of time and, you know, it might be worth their while to buy the name back and then sell it. That's exactly what we're going to be facing yeah, when your yeah. children are on the radio hosting this show and my <laughs> grandchildren are going to be the guest on this show. They're going to be talking about, hey, remember that time when Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band yeah. sold their, or Bob Dylan or The Who or all of these artists sold their catalog like the Beach Boys did recently. Not only did they sell the master recordings of their music, but they sold the likeness, they sold yeah. the name, they sold the merchandise. So in about 20 years, your idea of franchising this there could be one there could be a beach boys in residency in old age homes across florida forever <laughs> and nobody could put a stop to it because legally you could do that all right eric elber with his music publicist and commentator guess who's who uh you know the typical fights always fascinating eric thanks Should've for the been time lawyers, man Should've been i know lawyers. really if you'd only thought way back when right have a good one eric thanks so much Thank be you, well sir. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Pierre Polyev, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And I must admit, as soon as it was announced that Pierre Polyev was coming on the show, uh, Jugmeet Singh, NDP leader, is coming on tomorrow. So if we can only get the prime minister, my goodness, uh, look what's happened. Uh, look what happens when you're voted uh, a newsmaker of the year. Pierre Polyev, leader of the Conservative Party, with us now. Pierre, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Great to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. So your thoughts on being named by the editors across the country as the Newsmaker of the Year, Canada, Canada Press, uh, Canadian Press uh, Newsmaker of the Year for 2023. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are with the people who don't make the newspaper and don't make Newsmaker. Uh, those are the people who are lined up at food banks, uh, who are stuck living in their parents' basements until age 40. Uh, who are malnourished because they're, they can't afford food for their families. Uh, this is life and the misery that Justin Trudeau has created after eight years of inflationary deficits and carbon tax increases of blocking home construction and doubling housing costs. So I think of all the people who are suffering under the misery of the NDP Liberal Coalition, uh, they're, the, they're the ones that should be... Um, we should all think about not not a politician, whether me or anyone else. Uh, your thoughts uh, on what we've seen happen with the situation, uh, the rippling effect of the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Obviously, we're seeing protests uh, across the country. It's a free country. We're a land of immigrants. We know that that is allowed to happen here. But certainly what we've seen over the weekend, um, going into malls, uh, harassing uh, shoppers, even on, on video, threatening police officers. Where, where does this go? At, at what point do you draw the line here? I draw it in where people threaten violence or carry carry it out. And unfortunately, Canada has become a dangerous, divided country after eight years of Trudeau. Violent crime is up 40 percent. Shootings are up over 100 percent. Car thefts are a daily occurrence in most communities. Uh, And this is the direct result of uh, liberal NDP policies that have created a catch and release bail system that allows the most violent offenders to be released. 
And it's the result of a very divisive approach the prime minister has taken. He's divided group against group. He's encouraged uh, infighting based on race, ethnicity, sexuality, vaccine status, region, class, you name it. He's divided to distract from his failures. And now we're suffering the consequences of a divided and dangerous country after eight years of Trudeau. How do you separate Palestinians from Hamas and that conflict? As a world leader, what can Canada do? Well, I treat everybody as an individual. Uh, Palestinians are not to blame for the violence carried out by Hamas, which is a genocidal and homicidal uh, um, death cult. Uh, The Palestinian people are innocent, and my belief is that uh, we need to disarm uh, Hamas, uh, prosecute the murderers of October 7th, uh, and restore, return the hostages to Israel, and then let's get to a peace talk. Uh, that can lead to a Palestinian state. Uh, that is how we, we move forward. Here at home, uh, we need to show love and respect for our fellow citizens, regardless of whether they are Jewish, Muslim, Christian, or otherwise. Uh, remember, we judge people by their personal merits, not by their group, group identity. That's what makes Canada the best country on earth. Uh, the government today has announced that uh, it is going to phase out uh, gas-powered uh, cars and trucks by twenty twenty, or sorry, by twenty thirty-five. Uh, many on that side will say that you have no plan. How do you respond to that? Well, they they just don't like the fact that I have exposed the failure of their plan. I mean, the Liberals and NDP want to quadruple the carbon tax to raise your gas price by sixty-one cents a liter. Uh, they. Uh, have uh, tried to shut down our own energy sector, which has hurt uh, the, the steel business because we could be building pipelines with Canadian steel. But Trudeau drove that production to far, far away foreign uh, dick, dirty dictatorships uh, rather than bringing it home here to Canada. Uh, and so my common sense plan is to use technology and not taxes. Let's produce more uh, hydroelectricity, nuclear power, let's mine more lithium, cobalt, and other minerals of electrification here in Canada, rather than bringing in a mandate that will raise car prices, harm the poorest people, and you and buy the, ultimately the components for those cars from coal-producing and coal-burning China. I would rather bring home the production to our country to lower emissions and costs for our people. If you were prime minister, then would you uh, would you keep going with this goal of phasing out gas powered vehicles by 2035? No, it's not realistic. It's a tax on the poor. And so that single mom who needs to have a, a Toyota Corolla to uh, which is all she might be able to afford to get to work and take her kids to school. She can't afford an electric car. What's she supposed to do? She's supposed to ride her bike uh, in the middle of uh, uh, January in a Canadian winter. Uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, here we are with this is totally this is the radical out of touch agenda of Justin Trudeau and the NDP who want to quadruple the carbon tax to 61 cents a liter on the mother and then force her to pay an extra $15,000 a year to buy an electric car. $15,000 she does not have. We should bring in smart, achievable regulations that drive down tailpipe emissions and promote fuel efficiency. That's how you reduce emissions and costs at the same time. A listener, Barb, emails us and then says, uh, after you win as prime minister, would you sit down with the premiers to talk health care? 
Yes, because I have a common sense plan to bring thousands of more doctors into the system almost immediately. We have 20,000 immigrant doctors and 32,000 immigrant nurses banned from working in our hospitals, even though they were qualified in their own country. Why? Because there's no direct way for them to prove their qualifications. For 70 years, we've had the Red Seal exam for the trades, but we've never done something like that for the professions. So I'm going to work with the provinces, leverage federal healthcare money to get every province to sign on to a blue seal professional standard for every single regulated profession so that immigrants can prove they're qualified and get to work as doctors and nurses and other professions within 60 days. That will avail us to thousands of additional doctors who are already trained and are ready to, to serve patients. Last question, and and this is probably more on a personal side. Um, I met the kids' hockey rink earlier this week. Uh, People know what I do for a living. They often talk politics to me, this sort of thing. I'm still hearing people are unsure of you, of picking you. Uh, Some have, well, the Liberal Party is certainly trying to, to tie you to Donald Trump any way they can. What message do you have for those? My plan is a common sense one. We have to get back to the common sense Canadian consensus that liberals and conservatives shared for 25 years before Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's radical departure. Um, you know, we have to get back to a month's budget to bring down inflation and interest rates so people can afford to, to eat and they can keep their mortgage payments, make their mortgage payments. We have to get rid of the carbon tax to lower gas and, and heating bills. We have to incentivize the cities to speed up and lower the cost of building permits so we can build homes we can afford so we can get back to more affordable homes like we had eight years ago when I was the housing minister. We have to bring jail and not bail for repeat violent offenders to say to make our streets safe again and bring treatment, not more drugs, uh, to bring our loved ones home drug free. We have to seal our borders against illegal guns from the states rather than wasting billions going after law-abiding hunters and sport sport shooters. This is a common sense plan that that restores the Canada that we know and love. Pierre Polyev with us, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Thank you so much for the time. Best of luck. Great to be with you. Let's bring it home. And Merry Christmas. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. A couple of news stories today, uh, including the Liberal government announcing that uh, uh, car sales, uh, zero emission by 2035, no more uh, gas-powered vehicles, uh, truck or car at that point. And oil companies uh, are waiting until after the next election before they plan (laughs) their next moves. What does that mean? Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP here now. Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me again, Scott. Have you heard word that oil companies are really just sitting on the sidelines till the next election? <laughs> well, that's apparently the rumor. Uh, I haven't heard directly from them. They don't like me. I don't like them. I don't talk to them. But I, I do suspect that they're not the only ones. I think a lot of other people are now starting to realize that the writing is on the wall and anything that uh, this liberal government and its colleagues uh, uh, in uh, the uh, NDP uh, will probably not last uh, over 22 months. I mean, of course, a lot of announcements can take place between now and now and then, uh, but I doubt that many of them uh, are, you know, are taking it seriously unless this uh, 
coalition can somehow demonstrate that it has survivability. My guess is that it doesn't and won't. Uh, but hey, what do I know? I've only served, uh, you know, 18 years as a liberal member of parliament and probably another 20 years before that in the trenches working for the party. Uh, there are, it seems to be a lot of announcements. It seems they've got their communications on track now. Lots of announcements about housing, lots of announcements about uh, climate change. Are you surprised as we're heading into Christmas, they're talking about uh, phasing out vehicles, uh, gas powered vehicles by 2035? Is, is, is that a hit or a miss? <laughs> Well, look, the most enthusiastic of people who want EVs have EVs. The rest are people who are trying to make ends meet, uh, people who realize we live in Canada, not California, uh, and know that uh, cold weather is a significant enemy to any battery. Don't take my word for it. Take your iPhone or your, you know, your, your, uh, yeah. uh, your uh, other devices outside, leave them there for a while and, uh, and, and, and see what happens. I think there's probably a lot of wishful thinking. This sounds, by the way, a lot like what Gibo had announced back in March of 2022, same framework and whatnot. But, uh, I mean, the reality, I think, for most is countries are moving away from these so-called mandates, 2030, 2035, realizing that uh, what awaits them is uh, almost certain political defeat. And I think that's pretty much where we find ourselves today with the Liberals and NDP their coalition government uh, in very serious trouble and uh, really clinging to power. Uh, the other problem, of course, is simple. Uh, you know, <laughs> putting billions of dollars towards a technology is likely to be upended in the next few years. Uh, many people know that batteries do not work as well. A little scrape on the bottom and you suddenly have to replace the vehicle. I'm not down on the EVs, but I, I think it's important to recognize that it's one thing to say to people, this is a great thing, let's let's use it. Another thing to say, you, you won't have a choice. We're not giving you a choice. You damn well take it or else. And I think that's when the people turn around to the ballot box and say, I guess what? You're not showing us the door. We're going to show you as liberals the door. Uh, it's interesting because this is some, uh, this is now and in, in, in started, I guess, with questions to the carbon tax. You know, again, as you mentioned, everybody's concerned about this. Everybody wants to move forward. But what is the best way to go about this? And we're seeing this more, especially with vehicles and why I'm surprised to, to see this announcement today by 2035 is that it seems to be hybrids that are really, really taking off right now and really seem to be in demand and sort of that transitionary vehicle. Well, they are, and they've been around for a while. I'm the guy who helped introduce the first one for Toyota back in 1992 uh, with the tsunami. You now know it today as the Prius. But that aside, I think the bigger question is becoming one of what is all this about? I mean, unless you are truly of the belief that the world is coming to an end, uh, no one has made the argument for why these so-called transitions have to take place because reality is that thermodynamics and economics do not support what you're actually asking for. A cold country like Canada, which I mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, I, I, did, I did an interview today in Maritimes as I do every week. Uh, you know, 120,000 people are without power there. How are the heat pumps working? How are those electric vehicles working for charging? We got no power. I'm not saying that that is something to remark on as a way of saying, I told you so. I think we put all our eggs in one basket. The next government, I think, will be stressing energy diversity. And not getting, uh, you know, uh, carried away with this idea that somehow Canada is the bad boy and uh, we can change the weather by having more EVs on the road. I can tell you one thing, Scott, if anybody's happy with us driving CVs, it's China. And the last time I checked, yeah. all the renewables that we're buying from wind, solar, whatever you take your pick, uh, are all being done with uh, generation uh, helped by coal. So if we want to pretend that we're being cute and trendy and this is all this transition stuff, the only people we're hurting is ourselves. As for the oil companies, 
10 to 12% of your GDP uh, depends on that industry. You want to go, good luck with paying for your hospitals. Good luck with paying for your infrastructure because a 3% or 4% drop in our GDP puts us into a major recession, the likes of which most of us will wish we never had. Energy diversity, I'm hearing coming up more and more now, as you were pointing out to eggs in one basket. I think we're starting to understand that. Yeah, look, it's nothing new. My old rotting pickering, first commercial nuclear reactors in North America, yeah. uh, you know, back in 1966. So not all wisdom is new wisdom. It's certainly not based on someone's view that, uh, you know, carbon is the one element in the world that we have to worry about. Let's look at the fact that depending where you're in the country, we have, you know, we have strength in our hydro. We have, uh, you know, uh, we have strength in our nuclear, our, our natural gas. We have a number of ways in which we can bring about, uh, an, you know, an eclectic variety of, uh, of energy sources. But one thing is very clear. We can't step back and, you know, pretend that we can somehow render ourselves, uh, you know, to the state of nature eating acorns, wearing animal skins, but no fires because we're worried about, uh, you know, CO2 or we're worried about our, uh, you know, carbon footprint. This is where the rubber meets the road. And I think Canadians are starting to increasingly recognize this government with all its announcements and the flurry of them shows day in, day out, just how irrelevant it is to the realities that are about us. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about the energy industry. Uh, Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And yourself as well. Thanks, Scott. Take care. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, we talk about the middle class all the time. Uh, at least uh, the, the prime minister does. And I don't know if you remember, but we used to actually have a minister of the middle class. And you would think that the middle class is the majority of people, even though uh, most of us have a hard time trying to define exactly what is, what's the criteria, what are, what's the parameter, what, what, where are the boundaries of the middle class. Um, but one thing we do know is that a new uh, Polaris Strategic Insights poll uh, says that fewer than 31% of Canadians are optimistic about the future of the middle class. Many believe that the middle class is sinking, or sorry, shrinking, to talk, and probably sinking as well. To talk more about all of this, Dan Arnold, Chief Strategy Officer with Polara and here now. Dan, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thanks. It's odd, Dan, because it seems um, uh, we talk about this a lot, especially the prime minister. We used to have a minister of the middle class. It seems that uh, we're catering more to those trying to join it than those that are actually there. How do we define middle class? Is this not the majority of us? Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons we decided to do this polling up Polaris because everyone uses the word middle class, but nobody really knows what it means. There's no statistics Canada definition of an income level that means middle class. Um, so we just ask people, do you consider yourself middle class? And you've got about three and four Canadians who do. And I think that explains why politicians like to talk to the middle class because you know, most people feel like you're talking to them when you talk about the middle class, right? So um, you know, I think it shows that there's a, a large affinity across many different income categories, poor people, rich people. Uh, they all kind of consider themselves part of the middle class. And, um, you know, that's uh, something that uh, politicians certainly like to play to. Uh, we talk a lot about it, but do we really do much for them? Because it seems to be nobody's really recognizing what's happening in the world until it is the middle class that are suffering, the majority. 
Yeah, I think part of the challenge is it's easy to talk about the middle class. It's not quite as easy to do something for the middle class, right? Because, you know, in this poll, we found that among people who make twenty dollars to $50,000 a year, you've got the majority of them who feel they're middle class. If you go to the top of the income bracket, people making over 150000 a year, 92% think they're middle class. So it's hard to find policies that are actually going to help people that are making 200 k and people that are making 20 k uh, in the same the same way, right? So I think it's easy for politicians to say, I grew up middle class and I understand the middle class and I'm here to help the middle class. Uh, it's not quite as simple to necessarily help the middle class because, you know, so many different types of people consider themselves part of the middle class. Surprised it is shrinking or people think it's shrinking if so many are talking about it. Why is it shrinking? Yeah, I mean, in some respects, it's, it's not Shrinking in the sense that the same, this is a survey we've been doing for 10 years, and every time we do it, it's about the same share of people who feel they're part of the middle class. That said, when you ask people, is the middle class shrinking, 77% think it's shrinking. We asked them this wave, are you optimistic about the future of the middle class? Every other single time players asked this over the last decade, about half people have said they're optimistic. This this wave is down to 30% who are optimistic about the future of the middle class. So certainly middle class optimism is shrinking or or sinking, as you said off the start. Um, you know, I think that seems to be where the the psychological switch has kind of happened coming out of COVID. Uh, we're in a period of high inflation, of high housing costs, interest rates. And I think that pressure on people has just sapped out any optimism they had about the future of the middle class. It seems affordability has become a massive issue now, like affordability issues like the top uh, three to five issues uh, you would find where that's not necessarily the case five or ten years ago. Um, is this now resonating with the middle class? Yeah, I think so. Like When we ask middle class people, how, how are you doing financially? You've only got 11% who say they're financially secure. The most common answers are saying, I'm getting by, but without any money to save. And you know, I think that kind of explains the psychology right now that people are feeling like, okay, I can pay the bills, but I'm certainly not saving up for a nice vacation. I'm certainly not putting anything aside for my retirement. I'm, I'm just getting by. And I think you know, that is what takes a lot of the optimism out of the middle class. We ask people, you know, do you think your, your kids can grow up to be middle class? Uh, and Three years ago, eight and 10 parents said, yeah, my kids can grow up to be middle class if they work hard. Now it's down to five and 10. That's another big drop yeah. there. So I think, you know, people just look at the, the future and they say, like, I'm just getting by, but it's hard to, to think things are going to get better. And that's why we're seeing a much less optimistic middle class than we were a couple of years ago. And, you know, we're starting to see this as well with people saying that, you know, they don't know if they'll ever be able to afford a home. Some are saying they're not sure they're going to have kids. This is all a rippling effect of this and affordability, no? Yeah, for sure. And 56% of people say, you know, be middle class, being middle class means you can afford a house. So I think you look at your, you know, if you're older, you look at your kids and you say, God, there's no way they're ever going to be able to afford a house or have the same life that I had or be comfortable. And I think when people start looking ahead and saying, it's going to be really tough for young people these days because of the housing market. uh, I think that's why we see that low level of optimism just about, you know, is the middle class dream still alive for my kids? And you know, increasingly, people don't feel like the middle class dream is alive for their, uh, their kids, even if they're doing okay themselves. You talk about how difficult it is to identify who it is. It's such a wide span, a, a wide demographic and such. But it seems to be the common denominator, whether you're at this end of it or the other end of it, you're feeling the pinch. You're feeling the squeeze of your normal life. 
Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we've done uh, other polling at Polera uh, recently just on you know things that are causing people stress. And it really is like you look at the top of the list, it's like grocery prices, then it's housing prices, then it's gas prices, there is all these affordability pressures, even people who, again, are in the top income brackets making 150,000 a year, you've got over 40% who say they're very stressed about the price of groceries. Um, so, you know, these things are having an impact on people. And I think that is uh, reflected in the data here. According to Polaris Strategic Insights, fewer than 31% of Canadians optimistic about the future of Canada's middle class. Dan Arnold with his chief strategy officers with Polaris. Dan, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, Hockey Dad, and here now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Well, I'm hockey daddying it from one arena to the other right now, Scott, on hands-free as I talk to you across the city. <laughs> oh, that is something we all know too well. All right. Um, I, I had Pierre Polyev on the show earlier today. And, you know, he's Newsmaker of the Year for 2023, as uh, voted by the Canadian press. Did you hear that? Oh, I've heard that, and I hear Tyler, Taylor Swift is the one for the U.S. So there you go. That's an interesting twosome. Well, I thought I could use this to bring uh, Pierre Polyev out of his shell, right? Just kind of. So I said, congratulations. to, And I had a great line. My second line was going to be, I bet you any money it's because of your award-winning uh, housing documentary. But I never even got there. He, like, shut me down right away and said, well, I don't celebrate anything. I'm uh, talking about the struggles that Canadians are going through. Yeah, and yeah, then I had yeah, to yeah. immediately go to my serious questions. But I tried, Tim. I tried. Humor is an undervalued thing. Pierre's got to work on that one a little bit, but he's on full-on uh, campaign mode, it seems, Scott. Uh, and on my way, uh, I was at the kids' hockey rink uh, last week. People know what I do. They come and talk to me about politics. It's a big jig-jab jaw and stuff. And and I'm hearing the same thing. I don't know about that guy. I don't know about that guy. And I asked him that question. What does he have to do to soften that up and stop people from asking, what about that guy? I don't know about that guy. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think at some point his success has been because he's a good political actor, right? And I don't mean he's false or phony. I'm not saying no. that, but he he knows how to play the role of, uh, of of an agitated politician looking to disrupt and change things. Um, you know, no no more no different perhaps when Justin Trudeau came in. Though yep. stylistically, they're a bit different. But I, I think. <laughs> He's got to come across as more human. And I think when he had those ads, you'll remember them with his yep. wife and kids, that gave a bit more of a human element. And I think he's going to have to do more of that. And when he has encounters or interviews with people like you and others, not always make it so tense. Find a, a way to connect on a, on a human level, right? And that, that, I think, has always been a bit of a challenge of his. You must know him in a sense, right? I, I don't know. I mean, uh, so would I enjoy sitting down having a beer with him as much as I hope one day to do that with you? Well, I would hope not, not because Pierre's a bad guy, but because I'm more fun. Uh, <laughs> Pierre, Pierre, Pierre's just very intense. I, I mean, he yeah. used to, we used to work out at the same gym together, and even when he worked out, it would be quite entertaining because he would be just going all the time as hard as he could, sometimes to the detriment of his own body, because he was doing exercises the wrong way. But look, he's passionate and, and determined. And I think, 
yeah, he's he's got some work to do, but I mean, he'd rather have the work that he has to do than the work that Justin Trudeau has to do. And he, and he's newsmaker of the year because he basically has stolen the agenda from the prime minister, right? Yeah. He has determined in large measure beyond international events um, what Canadians are focusing on, and that requires skill. It's amazing, though, because, you know, apparently he doesn't like the news media, or that's the picture we're all painting, and yet, you know, there he is. He's top dog. Yeah, and I mean, it's an interesting relationship, right, as it always is between modern conservative leaders and and, and, and the news media. It, it seems like the conservative leaders, going back to Mr. Harper, have always viewed it as a, a, a combat a yeah. position, a conflictual position. Now, part of that's about raising money. Part of that's playing off, you know, preconceived notions that you're all left-wing lunatics. Uh, however, if we talk to you, they'll discover that's not the case with you. Um, you know, but that's, that's part of that is all caricature. Okay, so Nanos, we had Nick Nanos on today. It's been a big show. And now you, my goodness. Uh, Nick Nanos on talking about uh, how Christia Freeland and Mark Carney, uh, more people would like to see them as prime minister than the prime minister. They're coming in at 18 and 15%. He was down in single digits at nine. And Jolie and the rest were like down champagne. They're down at like a 5%, 24%, none of the above. We all know that he's going to stick it out. He's not leaving and he's gonna he's here no matter what but when all of a sudden people in and out of the party started polling uh, better than you does that change the discussion no not really i mean for him he's not going to care who's polling where it's going to for trudeau i mean it'll come down to does he want the fight with polly ever not because i'm sure in his heart of hearts he will believe as pierre polyev believes he'll be justin trudeau that he's the person to do it no disrespect to Kershaw Freeland or Mark Carney. I mean, they're well known, so their name is going to their name recognition is going to be higher, and that's what a lot of those polls do. Uh, certainly, in the case of uh, Mark Carney, he's not hidden the fact that he has broader ambitions that Kershaw Freeland continues to deny, deny that she does. But uh, so I'm not surprised by those numbers. Uh, what about Jugmeet? Tell me to turn right, Scott, just in case you were wondering. No, that's no problem. We're following you, by the way. Um, uh, <laughs> that's right. We're, we're the car tailing you. Uh, where does this leave Jugmeet Singh in the NDP? He's coming on tomorrow. As soon as you announce that Pierre Polyev's coming on, then boom, all of a sudden you get the, the NDP leader book too. But nothing from the prime minister. Still crickets there. But uh, obviously, uh, getting a win with the pharmacare. Does he wait till this comes through? Cash in his win and then bail what how does he come out of this uh better he well maybe no i don't think he necessarily cashes in then he's got to see that somebody's willing to go to the ndp right he's got to be most worried about getting squeezed out and i talked to him when i was playing scott thompson on vocm in the summer and that that same question i asked him uh, you know how do you continue to be relevant and i think he uh still trying to figure that out. I know they've done different events in, across the country um, after they got the dental plan, for example, to say, hey, we did this. It was us. Whether that fits with the public or not, we'll see. Uh, he's, I remember him saying to me, you know, I'm really not interested in power, just fixing Canada. And then, of course, you know, I went right <laughs> at him with, you don't want to be prime minister. Um, but how, how long can you keep playing that card and, and have a successful party? 
Well, as long as you're getting things, and he can make an argument that he, look, the, the liberal have a mutual need right now for each other. Yeah. And uh, and he's extracting things out of them uh, as a consequence of that. And he has some people who are supportive of it. There are others in the NDP who say enough is enough. So when it becomes so toxic for the NDP that getting a deal isn't worth the brand damage or future electoral prospects, that's when the breakup happens. Is it a slam dunk that they're the official opposition, considering where how people think of the liberals? I mean, is that a legitimate goal no, for them? I, I don't know. Look, this is very different than sort of 2011 when the liberals collapsed under Mr. Ignatieff and the NDP rose under Mr. Layton. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think I see that right now. I mean, look, there's still a long way to go. And you talked about um, Mr. Polyev, he's at a high watermark. Um, he, you know, he basically has to find a way to play defense without being offensive for yeah. the next little, the next two years. Uh, if he wants to keep his lead and be in a position to win, he can't just assume as well, uh, that, um, the country will remain sour and angry at Mr. Trudeau. Things may turn up all kinds of parts. All right, I was going to make a joke about Viagra, but that just would not be appropriate. Tim Powers with us, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data, talking about all things political. Tim, enjoy the hockey. Way to go, Dad. All right, talk to you again, my friend. Bye. All right, have a good one. Joining us after, uh, joining us after, well, no, I'll be gone, but uh, joining you after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. No problem. You know, you know, if rapporteurs were such a good idea, why have we not had more of them? I think you've just answered your own question. I just, I thought that we would suddenly be having this raft of rapporteurs popping up everywhere, but no, not so much. All right. So I had Pierre Polyev on the show today. I hear. And I've had him on several times and I was really trying to loosen him up. Okay, because, uh, well, because. And so I thought I'd go with the, he's the 2023 Canadian Press uh, Newsmaker of the Year, which is a pretty big deal. It yep. means you've, you've, you've got everybody's attention, which I find really fascinating because there's sort of this thing going on between him and the media, because the media, well, I'll leave it at that. Because uh, I am part of the media, you know, Scott, as are you. So uh, so anyway, so I started, I, I thought I'd loosen him up and I, you know, I, I started, you know, jovi- jokingly saying, Saying, you know, newsmaker of the year and da 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 da. And I even had a, la- a second line ready. So when he laughed and joked about it, I could say, well, maybe it was that award winning uh, documentary you did on housing because he joked about that. And I never even got it out. Never even got there. Just boom. Well, I'm more uh, serious. Whoop. Uh, the housing and the, and the concerns of Canadians. And I get it. You know, we're all hurting, but I thought I'd try to lighten it up. And he just, he went right to that. And then I had to, you know, quickly go to my serious questions. Yeah, well, uh, I, I don't know, honestly, and, and I, I, I understand exactly what you were going for. I do, I get it, but I don't know that any of the leaders, you can try it with Jugmeet Singh tomorrow, um, but I don't know that any of them right He's now. He's a pretty loose guy. He's not bad. I've talked to him about, you know, when well, he, got, he became a father for the first time and whatever, and la, 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 and, and yeah, I, I feel like I can be, have a, a good conversation with him. He might be a little bit looser because uh, what's he got to lose? I I mean, he's, I mean, <laughs> he's not, stage, yeah. he's not becoming prime minister yeah, and yeah. all that he's fighting for now is, man, if we can keep the Trudeau government around for another couple of years and I prop them up, I might be able to squeeze them for some more things on the, you know, so, um, 
Look, I, I, I'm not entirely surprised by that, A, because of his personality, and I certainly don't know the man, we're not friends, no. but, um, but B, because I think that when you live in that world right now, when you are yeah. either Trudeau or Polyev, all you are hearing from people is rage. Day after day, hour it's after pretty hour, it is, people are mad at Trudeau right now. And the polls say that. Yeah, yeah. And people, because they are mad at Trudeau, they want Polyev to attack Trudeau, those who yeah, are supporters of him. And yep. if they don't want him to attack Trudeau, they hate Polyev because he is attacking Trudeau. <laughs> so you're living in this bubble of rage. It's not entirely surprising to me that someone living in there probably is not smiles and chuckles. And you know what? Um, I think the country is feeling like, oh, my God, we got to put up with this, like, for another however many months or years or years. whatever. And years. he's probably feeling the same thing. He's like, how do you think I feel? I'm the guy waiting to go on the ice next. You're just watching from the stands, paying the fare. Yeah, you're probably the the second line center after Phil Esposito back in the day when he would go on one of his four minute shifts. And it's like, are you ever going to get out of there? Are you ever going to let me play? No wonder you score 76 goals in a season. You never leave the ice. Um, that's a very old school hockey reference. We could probably Boy, come up with it, something more recent. But a good recent. one I might add. It's because very he nice. was legendary for never coming off the ice for these yeah. enormously long shifts. So no, I, I yes, I, I'm sure there is pressure because... Uh, your guest just before the break made a very, very excellent point. And that is he has hit a very high point in the polls. He has to maintain this. How do you keep it up? Well, I'm not, I'm not concerned for him that he can't keep it up because I think that what we're seeing is day after day decisions that are being made by the federal government. Today's EV announcement, for example. Yeah. And there's tons of announcements coming out now. I just bang, 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 But so few of them are resonating. They're all they seem to be doing is angering people. So if you're Polyev, I think the interesting thing here is he is not a guy who has built himself to this point by standing down. He has been on the attack. He almost at this point could simply step back into the shadows and say, you know what, at this point, Trudeau, hang yourself from your own petard, by your own petard, because everything you're proposing now, you want more climate taxes, you want more, you want everyone to buy an $80,000 EV in a few years. We're not going to have this. You're not going to allow that. We've got, it's like everything that that the liberals did once upon a time that was like Midas that turned to gold has now turned to lead. They can't seemingly come up with an announcement that works. I, even one that was this week or last week where they, uh, Trudeau announced they were giving, um, was it $115 million in BC for housing? And they made the announcement, this will help build 40,000 homes. And someone said yeah. 40,000 homes for 115 million, a home here costs 2 million. That's 75 yeah. homes. Where's the 40,000 coming from? And it's just like every single thing seems to be blowing up in their face. They can't get their, their wheels are just spinning. Polyev can just step back, I would think right now and let them do it. That's, I guess, my point. Everybody's angry. So we don't need him pointing out uh, uh, the obvious. You know, we all know what he is. And again, does that just anger people? Um, But, you know, that is politics and you ride the message right till the very last day. And I heard, um, like you've heard this too, for the last number of weeks, it's very clear what the liberals talking point is. The, the, there should be a 
a federal politics drinking game that people play. Every time a federal liberal politician says, Polyev is importing far right uh, Trump style <laughs> politics. That's their line. They, they, they had take a, meeting, a shot. They had a meeting <laughs> and they were told far right, extreme right Trump style politics. And yeah, if you took a shot every time, you'd be an alcoholic by New Year's. <laughs> and, uh, and here's the other thing about that. Again, I'm, I'm impressed that Polyev has not yet taken the bait on that one because yeah, I think yeah. he is a smart enough guy to realize nobody else is seemingly buying this now. This is I a, was stupid enough to ask him though. Well, but this is one of those ones that seems, I think in the public anyway, if you look at the polls again, it seems that no yeah, it's flailing, it's desperation. And yeah. I don't think any, yeah, there are a few, I shouldn't say nobody, but most Canadians are not, even if they don't like Polyev, they are not looking at Pierre Polyev as Donald Trump. They are not the same person. I'm sorry. It's just, it's like when someone compares someone who does a horrible thing to Hitler. No, they're, they're, that's a unique thing. Any yeah. comparison just sounds silly by comparison. It, do, it just doesn't work. I don't think. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator as always, Scott. Have a good one. You too. Well, have a good night, Scott. I know you're checking out before you listen to me, so that's okay. You've had, you've had a long show, so enjoy your evening. Is he still talking? I've already <laughs> left. See you, pal. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This via email from David on the liberal leader. He says, hello, Scott. The only past or present members of the current liberals I would vote for would be Jody Wilson-Raybould or Jane Philpott. But I would not vote for any of the others as they have supported and enabled the prime minister. Dave. Keep right except to pass. 